In what was then primarily farmlands, 39 miles outside of Chicago, a gun battle erupted between federal law enforcement agents and an outlaw on the run, resulting in chaos and death. This is the story of Babyface Nelson and the Battle of Barrington. I'm Tommy Henry, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. Fair warning, this episode deals with gun deaths and related violence and a suicide, so please consider whether any of these issues may be triggering for you and or inappropriate for the listeners around you. The person who would become known as Babyface Nelson was born Lester Joseph Gillis in Chicago in December of 1908, the youngest of six surviving children of Mary and Joseph Gillis, two immigrants from Belgium. Joseph worked as a tanner, and the 1910 census shows they lived at 942 North California Avenue. At the age of six, Lester Gillis was enrolled at Lafayette Public School at Augusta and Fairfield, not far from Humboldt Park. Three years later, his parents moved him to a new school, St. Mark's, a parochial school just two blocks from his old school. Not adapting well to the rigid structure of a Catholic school and missing friends from his old school, Lester began to act out, even skipping classes. Around this time, nine-year-old Lester's older sister Jenny, who was 25 at the time, became sick with the great influenza of 1918. After eight days, Jenny died, traumatizing Lester. His parents decided to send him to St. Patrick's Boarding School in Moments, Illinois, about 50 miles south of Chicago. As Lester's 16-year-old sister, Leona, attended the school, his parents thought the transition might be easier for him. A month passed, and his parents received positive reports, but Lester was not a fan of the school. He hitchhiked back to Chicago, carrying a kitten he found, and convinced his parents not to send him back. They reluctantly agreed, saying he'd have to re-enroll at St. Mark's, and would need to follow the rules. I gotta stop right here to point out, this kid was 10 years old when all this hitchhiking was going on. And if you're thinking, ah, but these were different times, just stop right there. So much could have gone wrong. On July 4th, 1921, at the age of 12, Lester accidentally shot a friend in the jaw with a pistol he found and was sentenced to a year in a state reformatory for boys. A little more than a year later, in October of 1922, Les was arrested for stealing a car and joyriding. This had become a thing for Les and his other 13-year-old pals in the neighborhood. They would borrow cars from neighbors without them knowing, of course, then drive around until the gas tanks were empty. The cars would be returned undamaged, but you can see how neighbors might not have appreciated this tomfoolery. With this arrest, he was sentenced to the Illinois State Home for Delinquent Boys in St. Charles, Illinois, about 40 miles due west of downtown Chicago, for 18 months. When Lester was released, he began hanging out with a group of teens he had known since they were kids, but these teens had a new hobby, stealing car parts and even entire cars. On one of the final days of summer in 1924, a stolen car Lester was riding in was pulled over, 
and he was sent back to the boys' school in St. Charles. He was 15. Tragedy struck the Gillis household once again on Christmas Eve, 1924, just six years after his sister Jenny died, when Lester's father Joseph, battling depression over a failed business, took his own life in front of the family oven. Joseph Gillis was 55. He had snuffed out the oven's pilot light and turned the gas jets on high, leaving his wife Mary to discover his body. Three days later, Lester was escorted from the boys' school in St. Charles to attend his father's funeral. Joseph Gillis was buried next to his daughter Jenny in a cemetery in River Grove, Illinois. When he was 20, Lester was working at a standard oil service station not far from his parents' home. The service station was also the meeting place for a group of young tire thieves. Lester became enamored with the lifestyle and eventually met a criminal who hired him to drive bootleg alcohol to the suburbs. This was, after all, during Prohibition. It wasn't long before Lester Gillis fell in with a local crew called the Tui Gang and, claiming he was tired of police harassing him, adopted the alias George Nelson. The criminal exploits of Lester Gillis, now George Nelson, began to ramp up, not just in frequency, but with the violence that ensued. In the spring of 1928, Lester Gillis fell for a girl his age named Helen. Lester Gillis' mother Mary would later write of the two, quote, They were both just youngsters. There had never been a girlfriend for less up to the time of their meeting. He would go out once in a great while with some friend of his sister's, but from the moment he met Helen, there was never room for any other girl in his thoughts, end quote. Helen worked at Goldblatt's on Western Avenue, and Lester reportedly came to visit her so often that management had to ask her to request her boyfriend not come around so much. By September of that year, Helen was pregnant, so the couple got married. The first of Lester and Helen's kids, a son named Ronald, was born in April of 1929. From everything I've read, Lester Gillis loved being a husband and a father, If he was willing to be a good husband, a doting father, and get a traditional job, well, we likely would have never heard of Lester Gillis, a.k.a. Babyface Nelson, but there seems to have been something wrong with that boy's wiring. Numerous jewelry store and bank robberies and home invasions followed throughout 1930. By now, Nelson and his crew were wealthy men, but it would appear that as long as there were crimes to be committed and money to be pilfered, George Nelson was not going to stop. One such crime in early January 1930 involved the mansion of Charles Richter at 1418 North Lakeshore Drive in Chicago's Gold Coast neighborhood. Richter, the vice president of Consolidated Magazines, was summoned to the front door by a maid. When he opened the door to greet the visitor, he found a pistol muzzle pushed against his belt. As a smooth voice said, Steady now, Mr. Richter. You know what we want. Turn around and lead us in. Five men with guns entered the home. The crew bound Mr. Richter's hands and mouth with tape and Richter's wife, Jean, terrified for the safety of their eight-year-old and six-year-old children and the home staff, handed over jewelry to the robbers worth $25,000, nearly $421,000 in today's money. 
Area residents were furious that so brazen a home invasion could happen in such an upscale neighborhood and demanded the city take steps to apprehend the thieves. A special task force was put in place, and although Mr. and Mrs. Richter looked at hundreds of photos in mugshot books, they were unable to pick out the robbers. On May 31st, three men posing as census takers enter the Von Bulow home at 5839 Sheridan Road, tying up and blindfolding the couple and four others, escaping with $50,000 in cash and jewelry. Just two weeks after the Von Bulow heist, a young couple calling themselves George and Helen Nelson moved into a place at 6109 West 25th Street in Cicero, just west of Chicago city limits. Lester slash George was still working a few days a week at the Standard Oil service station, but appeared to have finances far beyond what he was making at his job. When explaining this to Helen's family, George and Helen claimed Mrs. Gillis was helping them with the money. To George's mother, George and Helen claimed Helen's family had loaned them some cash. No one appeared to be the wiser. October 3, 1930, the Itasca State Bank in the suburbs of Chicago was robbed, with the thieves making off with $4,600. A bank teller later identified Nelson as one of the holdup men. Three nights later, Mary Thompson, the wife of Chicago Mayor Big Bill Thompson, was mugged on the sidewalk near her Sheridan Road apartment building. The muggers made off with jewelry worth $18,000. She described her attacker by saying, quote, He had a baby face. He was good-looking, hardly more than a boy, had dark hair and was wearing a gray topcoat and a brown felt hat turned down brim. End quote. The baby face thing stuck, at least in the press. Helen Gillis gave birth to her second child with George, a daughter, Darlene, on May 11, 1931, at Garfield Park Hospital on the city's west side. By February 1932, the police were busily rounding up the Nelson gang. Babyface was arrested at his apartment in Cicero. Later convicted of just one robbery, Nelson was sentenced to one year to life in Joliet's state prison. After a trial in Wheaton, Illinois, added a second sentence of one year to life, Nelson was being transported back to Joliet's prison when he overpowered a guard and escaped. Next stop for Babyface, Reno, Nevada. In Reno, George Nelson took on a new alias, Jimmy Johnson. His old Chicago crew, the Tui Gang, had set him up with a gambler named William Graham, who basically controlled the city of Reno then. Graham got Nelson a job outside of San Francisco, working for a Sausalito bootlegger. It was here he met Joseph Fatso Negri and John Paul Chase. George Nelson's time in Sausalito ended up getting cut short when locals spotted a familiar face in the pictures of a detective magazine. Not even his pals Fatso and Johnny Chase knew their friend Jimmy Johnson was Chicago mobster Babyface Nelson. By the fall of 1932, Nelson headed back to Reno and then back to Chicago. 
By the age of 25, Babyface Nelson stood 5 feet 4 and 3 quarter inches and weighed 133 pounds. His temper certainly far outmatched his diminutive size. It was in Chicago that Babyface Nelson met up with an even bigger gangster than he was, John Dillinger. Now, to keep this episode from being an hour long, I will assume many of you at least have a rough awareness of John Dillinger. If you don't, well, he was a pretty bad dude. Bank robber, killer, you get the idea. Dillinger's gang with Nelson went on to rob banks in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, Mason City, Iowa, and South Bend, Indiana. During the South Bend, Indiana heist, a policeman was killed during the crew's getaway. Dillinger's gang, including George Nelson and wife Helen, decided to hide out at the Little Bohemia Lodge in Manitowish Waters, Wisconsin, approximately 170 miles northwest of Green Bay, Wisconsin. Someone at the lodge allegedly recognized the gangsters, and a call was made to the Division of Investigation, the precursor to the FBI. Federal agents, including Melvin Purvis, saw their chance to capture Dillinger and his associates. They quickly traveled by plane to the upper part of Wisconsin. The adage, fail to prepare, prepare to fail, is about to come into play. As the dinner crowd was just leaving the Little Bohemia Lodge, the timing could not be worse for the federal agents. Seeing a car with three men departing, the agents shouted for them to stop, but apparently the men in the car did not hear the agents, who then opened fire on the car, killing one of the occupants, a 35-year-old Wisconsin resident named Eugene Boisno. Dillinger and a few of his guys escaped out of the back of the lodge, which was unguarded. Babyface Nelson, who was in a cabin away from the lodge, came out guns ablazing. Melvin Purvis's men returned fire, and Nelson retreated on foot through the woods. He flagged down a car, taking the couple in it hostage. He then had them pull off at a house owned by a man named Elvin Kerner. Noticing the unfamiliar vehicle on the drive, Kerner called the police. Within minutes, a car arrived containing federal agents W. Cotter Balm and Jay Newman and a local police officer, Carl Christensen. Realizing the men were federal agents, Babyface Nelson opened fire with a custom converted machine gun pistol. Wounded in the barrage of bullets was policeman Christensen, who was shot nine times in the chest, arms, and legs, and federal agent Newman, wounded by a single gunshot wound to the head. W. Carter Balm, who was shot three times in the neck, died nearly instantly. This would be the first killing directly linked to Nelson. Years later, an associate of Nelson would link him to an earlier killing at a roadhouse in Summit, Illinois. Nelson was later quoted as saying Agent Baum had him cold, and Nelson couldn't understand why Baum hadn't fired. It was revealed during the investigation that the safety on Baum's gun was on. Three of the women who were with the gang at Little Bohemia, including Helen Gillis, were arrested inside the lodge. After being interrogated by the authorities, the three women were convicted on charges of harboring and released on parole. All the members of the Dillinger crew eventually regrouped back in Chicago, but the clock was ticking. Robbing banks was one thing, but killing a federal agent? 
That put the gangsters in a whole new wanted bracket. John Dillinger was now public enemy number one. Homer S. Cummings, the Attorney General of the United States, approved a $10,000 reward, approximately $210,000 in today's money, on June 6, 1934, for the capture of John Dillinger and $5,000 for information leading to his arrest. The poster with this info has a now-familiar name at the bottom, John Edgar Hoover, Director, Division of Investigation. J. Edgar Hoover would go on to serve as the director of the division that would soon become known as the FBI for 48 years until his death in 1972. On July 22, 1934, John Dillinger was leaving the Biograph Theater in Chicago when he was confronted by federal agents led by Melvin Purvis, who had been tipped off to his whereabouts. Reaching for a gun as he was trying to escape, he was shot dead in a volley of bullets. Two of the agents there that night were Samuel Cowley and Herman Hollis. George Babyface Nelson was now public enemy number one. The manhunt for Nelson was on. In November of 1934, George, Helen, and John Paul Chase got out of Chicago to lay low in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, just over the Illinois border. Back then, more than 20 years before the completion of Interstate 90, the best route to that area of Wisconsin was Northwest Highway, which passes through Barrington, Illinois, nearly 40 miles from downtown Chicago. On November 27, 1934, the Division of Investigation received a tip that Babyface Nelson and his associates might be returning from Wisconsin. Agents Thomas McDade and William Ryan spotted Nelson's V-8 Ford on Northwest Highway near Barrington, Illinois, and began pursuing them. Bullets from the car were exchanged until shots from Nelson's gun disabled McDade and Ryan's car. Within moments, a second car, driven by agents Herman Hollis and Samuel Cowley in the passenger seat, began pursuing Nelson's V-8 Ford. After a brief chase, George Babyface Nelson stopped near the entrance to what was then Barrington's Northside Park. The agents stopped their car approximately 100 feet away, taking cover behind the vehicle's passenger door. There were more than a dozen civilians nearby. George Nelson told Helen to lie down in a nearby ditch, and then he and John Paul Chase opened fire on the agents. During the roughly 45-second gun battle, a single 45 slug from Agent Samuel Colley's machine gun struck Nelson in the lower abdomen. Despite his wound, Nelson stepped from behind the car and walked toward the agents while firing his gun. Two of the bullets struck Colley. Several pellets from Agent Hollis's shotgun struck Nelson in the legs, taking him off his feet. As Nelson tried to stand back up, Agent Hollis moved to behind a utility pole. As Hollis readied his service pistol, George Nelson advanced on him again, sending more shots toward Agent Cowley before fatally shooting Agent Hollis in the head. Hollis slumped against the pole and fell face down near the street. Nelson staggered over to the agent's car, driving it over to his own disabled Ford. After transferring some guns and supplies, John Paul Chase got into the driver's seat of the agent's car, and the two men fled with Helen Gillis. 
Helen Gillis held her husband's head as the getaway car headed east toward the northern suburbs. With a gasp, Nelson reportedly told his wife, I'm done for. After waiting for an ambulance that didn't appear to be coming, Agent Hollis was loaded into the back seat of a local patrolman's car and brought to Barrington General Hospital at Lincoln and Huff Street, just a few blocks south of the shootout. This small hospital was not prepared for this type of injury. Hollis had been shot through the left side of his stomach, and a second bullet had entered his back. A third bullet entered toward the top of his forehead and exited out the back of his head, taking a large part of Hollis's skull with it. The doctor and a nurse did what they could, but the injuries were too severe. Hollis died 10 minutes after arriving. Herman Hollis, said to be one of the youngest men in the federal agency at the time, was 28 years old. He was survived by his widow and a four-year-old son. Minutes after Hollis was taken to the local hospital, another physician showed up to tend to Cowley at the scene. Once loaded into an ambulance, Cowley was taken to Sherman Hospital in Elgin, Illinois, roughly 14 miles south. It was determined later George Babyface Nelson was shot a total of nine times, in addition to the eight shotgun pallets from Agent Hollis's shotgun that had hit his legs, the single machine gun bullet that had struck his abdomen would prove to be the fatal shot. Nelson gave directions as Chase drove them to a safe house on Walnut Avenue in suburban Wilmette. Nelson died in bed with his wife at his side at 7.35 p.m. Agent Samuel Cowley died later that night at Sherman Hospital in Elgin, his wife holding his hand and his eight-month-old baby asleep one floor below. Cowley also left behind a -a three-and-a-half-year-old son. The morning after the shootout, Chase and Helen Gillis drove George Nelson's body to St. Paul Lutheran Cemetery in Nile Center, Illinois, now Skokie, and left his body not far from the cemetery gates, wrapped in a blanket. Much was made in the press about how his body was discarded and that under the blankets he was naked, except for a strip of cloth around his waist. George Nelson's body was found after a caller phoned in a tip that it was there, a caller that was likely Helen Gillis. It was then taken to the Cook County morgue and held in the same room on the same table that held the body of John Dillinger four months before. Guards were posted in case Nelson's widow, Helen, tried to sneak into the morgue for one last look at her beloved. Later that day, a reporter from the Chicago Tribune knocked on the door at the home of Lester Babyface Nelson Gillis's mother's home at 5516 South Marshfield Avenue. Mary Gillis, 65, answered the door holding a baby. Behind her stood four-year-old Darlene Gillis, Babyface Nelson's daughter. As the reporter began to say, your son has been found, Mrs. Gillis cut him off saying, you aren't telling me anything I don't know. I just heard it on the radio. Thank you for not telling me right out he was dead, but we know he's dead. George Nelson's older sister, Juliet, 31, and the wife of a clerk, screamed at the visitor, I know you're from the papers, before slamming the door. Both Helen and John Chase were still wanted by the authorities. Chase figured out a unique way to get out of town. He answered a newspaper ad looking for drivers to transport vehicles to the West Coast. 
Using the name Elmer Rockwood, he applied and got the job. For driving a Studebaker to Seattle, he was paid and went on his way. The day after George Nelson's body was found, Helen Gillis was arrested without incident. She was grilled about the whereabouts of John Paul Chase, but she honestly didn't know where he was. Chase would be captured within the month and sent to prison, serving 32 years before being released in 1966. Chase died from cancer in 1973. As it was determined she did not take an active part in the gun battle in Barrington, Helen Gillis was convicted of violating her parole from the Little Bohemia upheaval. She received a sentence of one year and one day. On December 9, 1934, Helen Gillis arrived at a federal detention farm in Milan, Michigan to begin her sentence. After her release, she returned to the Chicago area, living a relatively quiet life as few connected her married name of Gillis with the infamous name used by her husband, Babyface Nelson. Helen Gillis, the widow of Lester Babyface Nelson Gillis, died in Fox Lake, Illinois on July 3rd, 1987. She is buried next to her husband, Lester Gillis, at St. Joseph Cemetery in River Grove, Illinois, a suburb approximately 16 miles slightly northwest of Chicago. Neither of their simple headstones, both near his parents and his sister Jenny, bear any mention of the Nelson name. Lester and Helen's children followed not long after their mother. Darlene passed in 1994 and Ronald in 1999. Barrington's Northside Park was renamed Langendorf Park, and in the summer of 1993, a stone marker with a bronze plaque honoring Agents Hollis and Cowley was dedicated on Lyons Drive, not far from where the Battle of Barrington took place. The age of the gangsters faded over the following decades, with few leaving as lasting an impression as that of Lester Gillis, a.k.a. George Babyface Nelson. Thanks for listening to today's episode about Babyface Nelson and the Battle of Barrington. This episode was written, recorded, and edited by me, Tommy Henry. I have a brief list of links to books as well as other related items in the show's notes, as well as on the Chicago History Podcast website's blog page at chicagohistory.com. If you or someone you know is a history nerd like me, who would like to learn more. Anything ordered through those links, not just the items listed, may earn a small commission for the podcast and help offset production costs at no additional cost to you. As always, if you have any questions about anything covered today, anything to add or have an idea for a future episode, I'd love to hear about it. Send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. Check out the Chicago History Podcast Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages for articles and pictures related to this episode and past episodes posted throughout the week. The original art for the Chicago History Podcast used on the social media pages was created by John K. Schneider. Thanks, JKS. He can be found at JKS on Instagram or via email at angeleyesartjks at gmail.com. 
I will be back soon with more stories from Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe.